offered to Solomon, this is what would have happened, you know, people came from all over the ancient Near East to test him, who would have pondered them, thought about them, and then decided whether or not to include them in his book. We know that he spoke over 3,000 Proverbs. We find that in 1 Kings. Where are they all? There are only 915 verses in the book, so they're obviously not here. We don't know what happened to them. Just not all of them made it, just like not all of Paul's letters made it into the New Testament either. Well, but once they're in the book, they ask us to examine our choices and our behavior in light of the wisdom that they offer. So, we can simply ask ourselves, here's a question. You can even write this down if you like. Would I rather listen or talk, especially about myself? Would I rather argue or pay attention? Would I rather accept advice or reject it? Would I rather go my own way? And if we're really brave, we can ask our spouses or a very carefully chosen friend the same question. When you look at me, what do you see? But that takes quite a bit of courage. So then we ask, well, that's good advice from a man long ago, far away. Because we can imagine how helpful it would be for a leader to have counselors like that. I just finished reading um, a series of books that I commend highly to you. It doesn't matter what age you are. Um, it's called The Squire's Tales. They're by Gerald Morris, who's a minister, lives in Minnesota. He wrote a series of ten short novels. I guess they're young adult fiction, which is probably why I like them. Uh, and they're um, about the days of King Arthur. And he retells the stories in a way that is designed to redeem the image of Gawain, and et cetera. He goes into, he explains why he wrote them the way he did. But in the books, consistently, we find King Arthur facing a difficult decision, and each time he faces one of these decisions, he does not go off by himself to decide. Instead, he calls on his half-brother, Sir Kay, and Sir Gawain, his nephew, and Gawain's squire, Terence, who's one of the main characters in the books, and, and a couple of other people, there are about five of them in all, and they sit in a little chamber by themselves discussing what should the king do, because these are the men that the king trusts to have the best interest of England in their hearts. They're not trying to push their own agendas. They're not trying to push him out of the way. They want what's best for Arthur, what's best for England. And sometimes, very often in fact, one of them just sits there and Arthur turns finally and says, well, do you have something you'd like to say? And often that is the advice that proves to be best. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what Solomon is describing here. Someone willing to listen, seeking out advice and counsel, even if we suspect that we're not going to agree with what we hear. Or no, we're not going to like what we hear, realizing that we don't know it all. And that very often the silent person, the quiet one, the one who sits in the corner and just listens is the one who actually has the insight that we all need. Now, Solomon does warn, sometimes the person is quiet because it's, you know, still waters don't always run deep. Sometimes it's just a mud puddle, right? There's nothing there, right? So you can be silent and people will think you're wise, but you're actually... You're actually a fool. So, as Abraham Lincoln warned, 
you know, why open your mouth and prove it? But Proverbs is not just good advice. I mean, that's a picture. But it's not just good advice about how to run the show. It's actually um, good advice that comes as a word from God himself and offers us a way of seeing who God is, seeing who we are, seeing how the world around us is made to function, and how those three things relate to each other. And when we look at this from that perspective, we can ask this, we find this out. This is, um, you know, when, well, actually, I should say, when we read them, I'm, I'm just guessing, this may not be true for you, so it's just my fault, you know, don't, don't take my blame on yourselves. But I guess most of us read the Proverbs and we read the wise line we like, because that's us. The foolish line is somebody else. And it's especially somebody else that we wish were here so they would hear what the proverb says. You know, you ever sit through a sermon or something and you say, oh, I wish so-and-so were here because they really need this, right? Yes, well, that's kind of my guess is how we tend to read the Proverbs. We're the wise and we're the righteous. Not because we necessarily walk around thinking, oh, I'm wise and righteous, but because we like ourselves, frankly, don't we? I mean, most of us like ourselves. And you know what else? I can forgive in myself all sorts of things that I'm happy to condemn everyone else for. In fact, I forgive myself so often all the time I don't even realize I'm doing it. Well... Yes, but, uh, you know, when we read this again, Solomon is not, you know, he's not just writing this stuff so that we can condemn other people and exonerate ourselves. So we can, you know, we're not supposed to read this and say, boy, I wish Joe were here because he needs Proverbs 18.1. Instead, we find that Solomon is suggesting that maybe we talk too much. Maybe we listen too little. Maybe we are really quick at rejecting advice without trying to weigh it. Maybe we're so emotionally involved with the question that we can't see straight. We need to calm down, cool down our spirits and our hearts. Maybe we're the ones who are separating ourselves from counsel and seeking our own way because we're really only interested in what we want to do. You know, we're, uh, we're almost neurotic, most of us, about being right. Do you ever think about that? All the time, about everything. There's a TED Talk by a woman named Katherine Schultz called On Being Wrong. And uh, she says this, most of us do everything we can to avoid thinking about being wrong, or at least to avoid thinking about the possibility that we ourselves are wrong. We get it in the abstract. We all know everybody in this room makes mistakes. She's talking to a big audience. I'm talking to you. The human species in general is fallible. Okay, fine. But when it comes down to me, right now, to all the beliefs I hold here in the present, suddenly all of this abstract appreciation of fallibility goes out the window. And I can't actually think of anything I'm wrong about. And the thing is, the present tense is where we live. We go to meetings in the present tense. We go on family vacations in the present tense. We go to the polls and vote in the present tense. 
So effectively, we all kind of wind up traveling through life, trapped in this little bubble of feeling very right about everything. It's the end of her quote. Or as Solomon says in far fewer words, all a man's ways are clean in his own sight. Proverbs 16, 2. And that's why we need advice and counsel and correction and even rebuke because we're like sheep. If you ever watch sheep, I grew up on a farm, we had sheep. You know, you watch a sheep. You ever watch sheep in a field by themselves, not in a pen, but out in the field? A sheep nibbles, looks up, walks a few feet, nibbles, looks up, walks a few feet. Nib- That's what we do. We just keep looking for the next bunch of grass. And all of a sudden we look up and the flock is gone. The shepherd's gone. We don't know where we are. We don't know how to get home. We're lost. Well, if we don't have somebody else's perspective to help us out, that's where we all end up. If we don't have somebody to say, hey, wait a second, think about what you're doing. Think about where you're going. Think about what you're thinking. You know, if if wisdom and insight correspond to the classical virtue of prudence, Prudence is the ability to see things as they really are, to understand the situation we find ourselves in, and then to act according to that understanding. I had a friend once who um, went to see a counselor, and at the first meeting he said, I don't know why I'm here. He said, I'm a pretty smart guy. He was also pretty satisfied with himself. but He said, I'm a pretty smart guy. And I've been, I've been thinking about this for 10 years, and I can't figure it out. And the counselor immediately said, yes, but you've only thought about it from one perspective. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? It doesn't matter how clearly we see something. We can only see this, and there's all the rest. And so, as Solomon says, we need help from those around us. We need people who are going to come alongside and say, have you thought about it this way? Or, you need to think about it this way. We need the benefit of the body of Christ. And in order to get that, I need to shut up turn off the little voice in my mind that is already preparing the answer, even before I've heard the question, right? Solomon says that's one of the marks of a fool. In fact, he says there's more hope for a fool than for that kind of person, and there is no hope in Proverbs for a fool. It offers no hope. I need to be quiet and listen to the person who's talking, listen to what I'm reading, to stop to stop. Because the alternative to do that is, as Solomon says elsewhere, to fail to listen to words of wisdom is to leave the path of life. Well, that's the alternative, right? Life, death, wisdom, folly. Seems like a pretty pretty much of a no-brainer. But the danger is that sheep don't know that they're drifting away from the flock. They don't know where they're going. So...
Let me suggest something else. Since the book of Proverbs is part of God's revelation that we find in Scripture, each of these sayings actually tells us something about God himself, something about his person, something about his nature, something about his relationship with those things which he has made. So the first thing maybe we should say, and perhaps this applies every time we read the Bible, is we should realize what a great and merciful God we have who has actually communicated to us. He's actually spoken, actually spoken. He hasn't left us to figure things out on our own. He hasn't left us just to wander off and be lost sheep, but he's come after us. He's called us. He's given us his word so that we will not be left to our own devices. In this case, he points out, well, here's a choice, wisdom or folly. Let me tell you, this is, this is what wisdom looks like, and this is what folly looks like, and this is where you end up if you go the way of wisdom, and this is where you end up if you go the way of folly. There's a choice. That's what Moses said at the end of Deuteronomy. See, I have set before you this day life and blessing, curse and death. So choose life that you and your children may live long in the land which the Lord your God has given you. Well, that's a pretty gracious offer that God does not have to make to anybody. Second thing, if God is commending silence through Solomon, isn't it interesting? Well, you should never ask people that. That means I find it interesting. You may not, but I think it is. It's interesting that God is very often silent in Scripture. So, for example, we tend to think, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say we. I have tended to think that, um, that, that God's always chatting with the boys, you know, the heroes of all these Bible stories. He pops in, has dinner with Abraham, pops out, pops back, says, hey, I'm going to do this, and come on, and comes, and goes, comes, and goes, goes. But in fact, if you look at, read the story of Abraham, this is what you find. God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Some indefinite period of time passes by. Then when Abraham is 75 years old, God tells him to go to Canaan. In the next 13 years, God meets with Abraham three more times. That's four times in all. Then at 99, so he's, he's 88, right? And then at 99 years old, God appears once more. And then when Isaac is grown to us, we don't know how old he was, but to a certain age, God appears to him when he, at the testing, at the Akedah, the binding of Isaac on the mountain. So if you count those up, I'm pretty sure it comes out to eight times and Abraham lived for 175 years, or 185 years. That, that averages uh, once every eight, uh, well, I can't remember what it averages, every 20-something years. That is hardly the kind of ongoing conversation we tend to think they had. And the same thing is true in the story of Joseph. God never, never speaks directly to Joseph, never. In fact, the only time in the whole Joseph story, Genesis 37 to 50, the, which is the last quarter of the book of Genesis, the only time God speaks directly to someone is when he comes to Jacob in a dream and says, go down to Egypt, because I'm going with you. Now, he spoke to Jacob a few times earlier, but that's the only time in, that whole gen, in the whole Joseph story. And the same thing is true when we read the story of David, Joshua, Deborah, doesn't matter who. 
fact, even if we say, oh, but how about the prophets? God's always talking to the prophets. I mean, they're saying this is what the Lord said. Okay, let's read the book of Isaiah this afternoon. Get together with a couple of friends. Read the whole book of Isaiah. Read it as slowly as you want with as much emotion and expression and dramatic pauses and all that. And guess how long it will take you? If you're really bad at reading, it might take you two and a half hours. And Isaiah's ministry lasted over a generation. We, we, we see, we think that God communicates, you know, going back and forth, on and off, on, on, over and over and over and over and over again, but it's not really like that at all. In fact, excuse me, I want to move this out of the way. It's a little, there we go. Um, but instead, he's silent. He doesn't Twitter. He doesn't do Facebook. He's not messaging us. He's not barraging us with emails or voicemails or any of those things. I mean, I have friends who get hundreds, and I mean that literally, hundreds of emails and text messages every day. God's not doing that. He's not constantly, a friend of mine once said, he's not constantly sending us mini revelations. Oh, I didn't get the parking place. God must be telling me I need more exercise. Even though that's the way we often think. Actually, he doesn't need to. Because he's spoken in his word, and he's spoken finally, as the book of Hebrews says, in these latter days, a final word through his son, whom he's made the heir of all things. So we read this, and it says, be silent, and we think, wait a second, people are talking all the time. Well, yes, but if you abstract out the amount of their lives that those talks represent, it's not very much at all. Now, there's one thing, you know, the book of Proverbs, that these verses imply that wisdom comes through listening and being silent. God doesn't need to do that, okay? We're not saying that. I don't want you to walk away thinking, yeah, well, good thing God's quiet because he's getting more wise, he's learning more. We gain wisdom, insight, prudence, etc., when we experience something and then reflect on it. What happened? Why did it happen? What could, have ha what could I have done differently? How could I have responded differently? And then, when we apply that, what we've learned, to the situation in which we find ourselves, we demonstrate that we have gained wisdom or insight or prudence or whatever other word we want to use. But God doesn't need to learn anything. He knows everything about everything. And He always has. In fact, he knows everything about everything that ever has been or is or ever will be. There's no, he doesn't gain just because he's silent. He's not quiet in order to learn. He's quiet because he's already spoken. There's one more thing, well, two more things I want to suggest from these verses. One is, and this goes for much of the book of Proverbs, and it is that this, these verses remind us that we live in a created order. That is, it's an ordered creation. It's a creation in which, on the one hand, wisdom, understanding, prudence, etc., are good for us and for those around us and for everything among which we or within which we live. And on the other hand, 
to remind us that foolishness and wickedness also have consequences. Disaster, trouble, and destruction. And that's the way the universe has been created. That's the way things exist. That's the order that God has made and within which he's placed us. Things are not random. Sometimes we don't see how they work out or why they work out the way they do. But they're not random no matter what they look like to us because everything functions within and follows a truly cosmic order that neither we nor anyone nor anything can escape. And we have no choice, therefore, but to live in it. And that order reflects the nature of its creator. And here, and throughout Scripture, God, out of his mercy, reveals this order to us so that we can, by his grace, make some informed choices. So that we can actually choose life, life, rather than death. So that we can set our lives back on the narrow path, avoid the broad highway, so that we can seek after things that are truly good and right and just and avoid those things that are not. And finally, when we read verses and read the word wisdom, understanding, discernment, insight, etc., that ought to remind those of us who are believers in Christ that Jesus Christ himself is the wisdom of God, Paul says. And that he not only knows our hearts, but that even now, by his spirit, the presence of his spirit within us convicts us of sin, leads us to righteousness, calls us to himself as the only way to the Father and to eternal life. We also remember that this example of divine wisdom never did anything of his own accord but always submitted himself to the will of his Father. And that includes 30 years or so of submitting to his human parents, as well as the parts that we know about teaching, healing, preaching, ministering, and eventually submitting even to death itself on our behalf can't imagine a greater contrast to the folly against which Solomon is warning in these verses. And it's hard to imagine a greater reason for hope. The problem, you see, is that we are fools. Yep, you and I. See, I said it. I said we don't want to say that, but I did say it. We want what we want. We want it how and where we want. And most of all, we want it now. And these verses condemn us. We walk around in our little bubble of rightness, as Catherine Schultz calls it, not realizing that here in the present tense, we're not only not right, but we're actually wrong. Solomon calls us then to seek life 
by bringing our lives into line with God's original, very good, created order, which is possible only in and through Jesus Christ. Now, did Solomon think all those things about Jesus and the coming of the Messiah? Probably, almost certainly not. But Scripture, Jesus himself, encourage us to see him in all his beauty and majesty as we read what his goodness and mercy has chosen to tell us. So we ask then that the same kindness, the same mercy, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Let us pray.